0: Hello listeners, Abraham here. This episode you're about to hear was intended to be a discussion in in which we cut together our main discussion with an interview that we did. However, due to several serious technical difficulties that we encountered, uh, we were unable to combine the episodes, and instead of just releasing nothing, uh, we decided to release the discussion with Ryan and myself separately, and that'll be the episode that you hear today. And then next week, you'll hear the interview that I did with our guest, so... Any references that you hear in this episode will be relevant to next week's episode. We'll say things like, in this episode, and stuff like that. But we are actually referencing next week's episode. Sorry if that makes the listening experience a little weird. Um, I did my best to edit the episode together these episodes together so that they flowed as normally as possible Um, but they are they were intended to originally be one discussion that was sort of pushed together and instead because we couldn't make that work with the technical difficulties that we faced decided to just release them separately they really were able to stand alone sort of on their own so hope you enjoy this episode and listen to next week for part two
1: you're listening to why we do what we do
0: This is Abraham and Ryan O. And so this is why we do what we do. Thanks for listening. Oh, (laughs)
1: yeah. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
0: All right. So I want to start by asking you, Ryan, what's something you're good at? Like really good at? Like really something you're like, I can do. I got this. Social media. Social media. (laughs) What does one do on social media that you can qualify as being good at it? (laughs) How (laughs) about keyboard warrior? No, um,
1: (laughs) I would say the one thing I've gotten very good at this year is organizing and editing video. They're not perfect. I have a light years of like more to go on what I'd really love to do. But yeah, I've like seen myself develop a lot of fluency in those areas.
0: All right. Is there anything that you feel like you are about as good at it as you can be?
1: no. Okay. <laughs> is there anything you think I'm as good as I can be at it? I
0: don't know, man. I don't um, know you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hard, right?
0: That's fair. Oh, that's a good point. All right, let's say maybe not as good as you can be, but, like, you are good at, you know what, pass. How about
1: this? Like, saving and organizing files and finding things again? Like, yeah. I think I'm pretty darn good at that. Awesome. People, like, often are like, where is this? I'm like, here, I found it. This is it. Does that count? Yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: I'll go with for... um. Going by uh, by the criteria of you can't get any better at it, I think the one thing that I probably couldn't improve on more is being able to manipulate like a fork and a spoon. I'm, I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> okay, I think I'm as good at that as I could possibly be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Does that include like tricks, like flipping it around, your, like your old drumstick days, like, you know, like <laughs> flipping around too?
0: No, just in terms of functionally using them to get food to my mouth. Okay,
1: fair enough. So if you're thinking that, like I'm pretty darn good at drying myself off after a shower. Great. There you go.
0: Very, very, uh, a proficient skill.
1: Yep. I don't know if I could get any better. I think I've mastered it down to the minimal number of like swipes to be able to get dry.
0: Perfect. And that actually gets me to the next question is what is it like to do something that you're good at? What does that mean?
1: It feels great. Okay. (laughs) Right. You're like, I nailed that.
0: Sure. It probably feels easy.
1: Yes. Effortless. Maybe. Yeah. You don't even think about it. Probably. Right. You're just like, oh, I did that? Yeah.
0: Sure. That's a good example. Okay. So, what does it mean to be good at something? Then, actually, we sort of just talked about it, which is that if you think about someone who's really, really good at something, they're just awesome at it, maybe the best even. That one example, what that means in a way is that they can do it in many different circumstances. They probably make it look like it's easy. It may even feel easy to them, right?
1: That whole effortless component.
0: Yeah, exactly right. What else? What else does it mean to be really good at something?
1: People look up to you as like being good at that, probably to some extent, right? Like they recognize like that is someone else can point out like that is someone that is exceptional at this. So I'm thinking of Michael Jordan, right?
0: And what? So actually, that's that's great because my next question is then, what about Michael Jordan? How how do you know that he's exceptional? Like, what does he do that makes it seem that he's exceptional?
1: There's some sort of like elegance and effortlessness to be able to perform the skills that you're performing in those areas like Michael Jordan was known for just most things that are required for you to do in basketball defense offense and breaking all those things down just very very good at them didn't seem to struggle at having to get better at them I would like completely side note you know this of like there's a lot of work that goes into that to make that happen yeah right and like that was there we know that's there but it seems that way when you're watching
0: on yeah and that's part of what we'll be talking about is how one gets to that point. I think looking at something where they can do it immediately, they can respond to changes sort of on the fly. Have you ever seen someone who's like super, super good at their instrument, like a guitar or a piano or something like that? And you throw, I have
1: a perfect example. Okay, go for it. Okay. I was watching slash at the GSR okay. here in Reno okay, awesome. five or six years ago. Wow. And he broke a string. Okay. mid Like solo, just like going to town. This is like that 10 minute solo, but he's like two and a half minutes in. Okay. And all he did, as you see it, like you could see and hear it snap, and he just moved up the fretboard. Nice. And he just kept going. Awesome. And I was like, you just adjusted right now without missing a single note. That's perfect. You kept going. That's
0: such a good example. It
1: was beautiful.
0: Yeah. That is such a good example because that's exactly what we're talking about is how do you know when when someone's really good at something, what are the characteristics of that performance that we call it really, really good. And so what we're talking about, and we've already mentioned it a little bit. And you probably saw it in the title of the episode, but we're talking about this thing called fluency, this concept of fluency, right? Let's get a little bit of background on this concept of fluency. And I guess we'll start with the definition.
1: There have been several attempts at this, correct? Yeah. Let's start really high up. If you were to just search online, you'd probably run into something like Wikipedia, their definition. They define it as a property of a person or a system that delivers information quickly and with expertise. So I would say, Looks like there's a couple things here. There's some sort of quick, right? Yeah. Like a long time needed to do this, very quick latency, as well as they are a subject matter expert. They're an expert in this area.
0: A lot of experience and a lot of training, a lot of knowledge in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: But then we can jump into more specific ones. One that we are fond of here is an interpretation by uh, Dr. Carl Binder in 1996. He summarized a lot of different areas of research that were from the behavioral psychology areas in general, and he defines fluency in that paper as a fluid combination of accuracy plus speed that characterizes uh, competent performance.
0: Yep. In 1996 as well, another pair of authors, Kent Johnson and Joe Lang, defined fluency as, quote, behavior that is flowing, effortless, well-practiced, and accurate, end quote. So like that one. Yeah, it has similar components to what we've seen in there.
1: And then Johnson and Street 2012 also have a book on fluency and this, how they're applying it in this educational setting. And they talk about as a descriptive term used to label certain learning outcomes. Right. So when we say learning outcomes, they use an acronym to describe some of these. So there's different ones out there. REAPS was retention, endurance, application, and performance standards, I believe. Yep. And then that was refined into this idea of message was the acronym, or now it's message slash PS. So I'll just read these. So they say message P S. So that's M-E-S-A-G slash P S, maintenance, endurance, stability, application, generativity, and performance standards. So these are things that you should see in the behavior or the performance that we're talking about that we're calling fluency. So in order to be labeled as fluent responding you have to demonstrate those sort of things
0: exactly so if any of the outcomes that are associated with fluency if any of the outcomes are missing that are supposed to be a represent a representative of this concept of fluency, then you would not describe that particular performance as being fluent. If it didn't have maintenance, if it didn't have endurance, if you didn't have stability, if, those, if one of those things or something else that was a characteristic of fluent performance is missing, then we don't call it fluent performance because this is a descriptive term based on those outcomes, right? I think it's very easy for people to want to call something fluent because it's fast and it might be missing these other things. And it's just important to distinguish why that's different. So, for example, if a student read 100 words per minute for one minute but couldn't maintain the same rate for two minutes or couldn't read if there was distractions, then and those are just examples of some of the characteristics of what would be fluency is that you could read for a longer period of time that you could read if there were distractions, then we would not call that skill fluent because those components were missing.
1: Yes. So this means that fluency doesn't result in positive learning outcomes. Fluency is the learning outcome.
0: So yeah, said another way, the word fluency is a way to describe performance once that performance is accurate, it's easy or effortless, persistent, and can be done quickly if it needs to be.
1: All right. Rewind. Let's go back into the history a little bit.
0: Okay. <laughs> all right. So let's start with the word fluency. This has roots in both Latin and Greek. There's kind of a lot going on there in terms of how it's been used, but they're all relatively similar. It appears to be related to the word fluentum from Latin, meaning to flow freely, which also seems to be maybe derived from the base word uh, more simply, flu- fluere, which means to flow. Now, that's just the word fluency. As far as the concept and how that relates, especially to learning and learning outcomes, there was a psychologist by the name E.B. Huey, And he was really one of the first, if not the first, documented psychologist to suggest that an outcome of learning was that it became effortless and fast. And to this point, he published a book called The Psychology of Pedagogy and Learning in 1905, in which he suggested that practice was necessary when learning something new and that a skill would eventually become automatic with that practice.
1: All right. So fast forward, what, half a century later? Yeah, we start a long to see, time. We start to see some more people looking at this term fluency. And it looks like Labarge and Samuels published a paper. I don't have the exact citation, but they're looking at uh, automatic information processing that's still apparently cited and used today. And then we, trans around that time, also in the 60s and 70s, is when folks that oriented behaviorism started studying this as well. One profound area in person that was looking at this was the group Precision Teaching and that founder, uh, Ogden Lindsley. And this is focused in essentially on uh, looking at fluency in school settings is where a lot of the applications are, but it had f- the idea was how could we look at fluency in all areas of life, right?
0: That Yeah, certainly it it got to that point. So as you said, like these are some learning scientists. That was really their main main thing in life was academic education, or at least that was one of the primary things they were interested in. And so one thing is that schools have many different ways of measuring learning to determine if their outcome, if their education was effective, right? And to be able to report on their students' performances some way of – evaluating educational practices. That's, that's been done a lot of different ways. And Lin, Lindsley obviously knew this and was more, I guess, aware of what those were and the implications of those measurement systems once he was working in a school setting. So a common way of measuring performance in schools is called a percentile. And this is just, it's a way to simply rank all of the students on a particular academic performance for a specific task and then compare them to one another. So that essentially out of that group, your top performers at the hundredth percentile, your bottom performers are at the first percentile. This is simple enough, it's elegant. A percentile system means that everyone is on the same scale Every graph will look about the same with the entire distribution of possible scores able to fit on a single graph. And every piece of data that's on that graph provides a clear and understandable reference point to how that student is performing, at least with respect to the other students in the school, right?
1: All right, Abraham. So let's say a child is at the 25th percentile. That means that they're behind their peers. What do we do? Where is that child falling behind? How will we know if we are improving if the peers are improving at the same or faster rate?
0: Right, Because in that particular instance, if their peers are improving and that student is improving, then their percentile score actually won't change. Exactly. They'll still be in the same part of that distribution as their peers. Improve. And when
1: we say 25th percentile, what does this performance look like? If everyone's at about the same score, does that mean that someone is only a few points behind the top performers? but at the bottom of the range of scores that would fall into this first percentile?
0: So if like everybody had 99 and one student had 97 on a test, then that one, that one student would be in the bottom percentile mm-hmm. while everyone else is at the top percentile because that's what the distribution would be.
1: Okay, right. so what's some alternatives here maybe?
0: So, well, there are other ways that people have measured academic learning. Uh, one of them that's fairly common also is qualitative, which means providing a description of their work in some kind of narrative form. So you might did say, great. Yeah, you get an A. You're a good.
1: You're good horrible. Student. You got an F.
0: I think the flaws in a system that uses a narrative commentary are fairly obvious in terms of how you actually measure. I, a, a narrative commentary can be very useful for understanding the nuances of something. But as far as measuring outcomes, so you can report on the success of, a, of an academic instruction, being able to say good is not a particularly great one. And obviously, that's not all that common, especially not anymore. But at the time that Ogden Lindsay was in schools doing his work, that there were a lot of descriptions of how students did that were narrative, right?
1: Yeah. So I was uh, talking a bit about grades there. These are more like a static criteria that's basically arbitrarily agreed upon, right? Essentially. Even though they vary across the the nation or world as like what constitutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So you got an F, too bad. So as you said, they they lack specific information about the performance that would inform any kind of intervention or any kind of remediation, or to clearly demonstrate any kind of a trajectory toward a goal, because they just simply state some percentage out of some number, and often we don't even know what that number is. Furthermore, grades represent a percentage correct, and students with a high percentage correct that is, again, if they might be making zero errors, so they're 100% accurate, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily do better on new tasks. They don't necessarily remember the skill that they learned. They may not be able to apply that skill to new situations. And actually, not even may not. Like, this exactly happens, that you'll yeah. see <laughs> students who are completely accurate. Uh, like, this is just something that happens. And they're not necessarily doing much better on even the percentile-ranked standardized tests that they might be taking.
1: And this is where that... Uh Dr. Oglin-Lindsley comes back in. He felt that measuring performance could be greatly improved by having a specific measure of the performance of interest. Not that they were at the 15th percentile for reading for an 8th grader, 5th grader, 6th grader, 2nd grader, whatever, but that they read at, you know, maybe 100 words per minute, 120 words per minute, right? Something very specific, measurable, things that you could see, and that were tied to these outcomes that we talked about earlier, such as the message acronym.
0: Yeah, and so... If we know that they read at 100 words per minute, but they should be able to read at 200 words per minute, much clearer in terms of how far away they are from their actual goal and what needs to happen to get there and what their trajectory toward that goal might look like, especially if we have an idea of how much they've been improving over time um, on on this reading task that they're working on.
1: So how much do we want to get into how they really analyze this, like with the graphical displays and such?
0: Just, I mean, just a quick overview, just so we uh, can orient to why he used this and how this led to the development of uh, fluency.
1: Yeah. So the idea was, how could we start to eliminate any errors we may make when we're trying to understand who is really performing at what fluency level right and specifically
0: so, how uh, to, to focus on measuring something that we can clearly depict as like this is the the academic performance of interest
1: and to sum up a lot what that turned into was a semi-logarithmic graph just means like a multiply divide you can fit a lot of different things that you're interested in on one graph right similar to like a seismograph right sure yeah and it could fit all ranges of human performance is the idea. And then it was also able to capture those things in these real-world observable measurable ways. So everything was a frequency. It was some sort of uh, count over time that you would look at and track across an additional amount of time. Maybe that's you know, how many words per minute, per day, per week, per month. Right. Where was your improvement there?
0: Sure.
1: So they used this graphical display. It was called the standard acceleration chart. It is not grossly widely known by any means.
0: No. Also, at the time, it was called a standard behavior chart.
1: Yes. But it was, I guess, going a little tangent, it was interesting. They really wanted to make sure that they were understanding, was this tool designed to really help people achieve fluency? So things even down to the color of the chart were studied empirically mm-hmm. to see whether or not that they were designed um, to help aid in those, those sort of things. Yep.
0: Okay. Also, the, the, having this standardized display that didn't change actually sort of similar to how the percentile was set up. The percentile was set up in a way that it was always the same sort of graphical display for the most part. And what that allowed for is quick, easy reference. And so uh, this one, rather than focusing on percentiles, though, actually gave a specific performance measure that could be uh, calibrated and analyzed more specifically and more precisely.
1: So what he and his colleagues, there was a whole uh, lot of people in the, the late '60s, early '70s that were working on this, right. and what they were collectively starting to discover is that students who did the best in the school settings were a lot faster than their peers. Right. It's been demonstrated a couple of different times. It's very impressive. At that where you would have things literally with people with the same percentile correct mm-hmm. when you measured them at how fast were they going mm-hmm. there was complete differentiation right right
0: yeah so they were they were both accurate but one of them went really fast and the the student who was going faster was just doing better on all things related to that task
1: and give a quick example we can both tie our shoes myself and maybe like my little cousin that's three and a half four years old yeah Is that a typical age to be learning to tie your shoes But if it takes me, you know, like five seconds and it takes him two minutes, that's a very stark difference in performance rate, right?
0: Yeah. One of those is more masterful than the other.
1: Yes. And that is what we're talking about here. And this could capture those sort of things because you were looking at it not in a percentile sort of function, but you were leveraging some of the components of what they were trying to do with percentile and making it a little bit better in this graph.
0: Exactly. And so. Because they noticed that those peers who, or those students who went faster tend to do better, they sort of reasoned that, okay, let's see if we can encourage these students to go focus on speed. Let's see if we can actually work on getting them to go faster and see if that also leads to doing better on some of these other tasks. And so... To do this, the kids really need to have a lot of opportunities to actually practice, and that just comes right back around to what we first talked about with E.B. Huey and his original proposal in 1905 is this whole idea of practice, and that leads to automatic performance. And then back to that article by LaBerge and Samuels on automatic information processing. Like all of this, it, it, it builds up and sort of proves the original idea of of being quick in this automatic performance, right?
1: Yes, yeah, so there's this entire subfield, I'd say, Yeah, that is trying to really understand things like this fluency um, and what role does it play and how do we get it out there and more well-known because there's a lot of valuable things in it. And it's called precision teaching, but it was originally called kind of like precision X. The idea was you could do precision teaching, management, whatever, right? Like you could fit a lot of different things into that framework.
0: Right. All right. So let's start with actually the question that we asked at the top of this or at least what the intended title of this is going to be why is this important okay and so um again a little bit of background information here fluency is a label that is commonly associated with language so like being fluent in a language if you say you're fluent in English or fluent in Spanish that means that you can speak it perfectly right if In fact, there is something in neurology called a fluency diagnosis. It's interesting. And this actually refers to the disruption in the ability to produce language. So in neurology, this means that fluency is sometimes simply used to refer to language.
1: Another way you might conceptualize fluency is when we're talking about teaching children things such as reading or maybe doing math and doing these sort of things quickly. The point is that we don't necessarily want just the quickly aspect, but we want people to be able to do these sort of things effortlessly and immediately.
0: And the reason that reading is such a big one is because that's one of the few academic areas where pretty much ubiquitously in schools, uh, reading fluency is the measure of uh, how how well they're reading. Is, yes. Is that reading speed? That's exactly it.
1: And it is, I would say, just don't forget, it's tied to also a core thing that allows you to access a a lot of the world's information, right? <laughs>
0: right. It's the fact that you can read allows you to do more things. Yes, exactly. And yeah, be better at, and, and again, that's that application part of this. So, okay, we know that language fluency and reading fluency, these are common things, but why would fluency matter for things other than reading and language?
1: So, like brushing your teeth? Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. All right. So, the point of fluency is not that you can do everything quickly, right? The point is that you can do it effortlessly and immediately. And to be able to measure that you can see how quickly your learner, whoever that is, can go with those practice opportunities, right? So it's not that they can always, always do it quickly, but in order to determine whether or not they can they can do it immediately. And in those situations, we give them practice opportunities and measure how they do when they can just do it over and over and over again. Okay, yes. Make so sense? An, yes. And okay. so
1: an example here would be you don't need to brush your teeth extremely quickly. Right. right. I mean, that could actually be opposite of what the intended yeah. performance is. You might
0: want that, that to go slowly.
1: But you do need to be able to do, open the toothpaste, apply the the toothpaste to the brush, follow all the requisite motions of brushing and rinse without having to consult a manual, list of steps or the aid of somebody else. So if that's something that you struggle with, simply practicing each step or at least the problem steps could start to remediate and and help build that that sort of repertoire.
0: Right. So, yeah, if there's there are pieces of that that you need to be able to do immediately. And if you have to every time you go to wash your hands, stop and like run through a checklist of like, okay, what do I do first? I'm going to look at my hands. I'm going to look at the sink. I'm going to reach my hand out and lift up that little lever so that the water starts coming out. Yeah, Like your life is just going to go by so slowly. Yep. Most of these things are things that we learn. We can do them immediately when we get there. We know how to interact with those situations. And it's not that we're doing that situation at like hyper speeds. It's that we know how to do it as soon as we get there. No prompting, no lists, no effort. It's just something we know how to do.
1: So, a lot of times fluency is simply that you need to react right away. Right. And Safe to say?
0: Yeah, absolutely. For example, in his book, The Power of Habit by author Charles Duhigg.
1: Subtitled, Why We Do What We Do.
0: Yes, it is. So I was saving for uh, when we... Um, I'm going to do a book review on this. So uh, he talks about the fluent performances as a habit. He says when you become so familiar with something that you can do it automatically, this is a habit. And that's essentially fluency, right? And in this book, he tells the story of a coach named Tony Dungy of an American football team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, in I think the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, this team, he had them practice the same drills over and over and over repeatedly until the responses to very specific events and cues in the game, the reactions to those cues became automatic, almost like an instinct. He described that they didn't need to be stronger, they didn't need to be, have like really impressive gameplay strategies, they just needed to react faster than the other team. And it took a lot of training to do this. It took a long time. But after a couple of years, they started to actually win quite a few more of their games, even though they had been on a really long losing streak for like decades or something. But they eventually were able to even make it to the Super Bowl for the 2002 season. And this is, again, after years and years and years of failing to make it to the Super Bowl, once they developed these these reactions, these immediate habits that are almost instinctual to things in the game that you can tell what's gonna happen before someone who has to think about it and make a decision, you are already there. Yes,
1: so the general idea here is that you focus on these smaller subsets of skills, right? Yeah. They often call them tool skills or component skills, and they build up into these more fluent repertoires or like elegant performances like you're talking about. So if we were talking about football, I don't know the specifics, but you'd be breaking down in practice and working on the things. Often, uh, I I remember seeing the like you know they have, like the big sleds with like f- uh, fake dummies that mm-hmm. like the you'll see the linemen line up in front of and the tweet boom and they gotta like practice those sort of skills over and over and over again. Right, that's what we're talking about here, right?
0: And the other one too is things like. When the quarterback of the opposing team throws the ball, what direction do you start running? Yeah. And actually before they throw the ball, where are they going to throw the ball? Yep. And you start to pick up on those subtle little cues the quarterback doesn't even know that he, he's doing mm-hmm. in terms of where are you going to start running because you've seen it so many times that you just know this hand position means it's going over there. It just it has to because that's the only place it could go. And so, so they, pull- they can't even react to it.
1: Yeah, so you'll be pulling those sort of things out and working on those in isolation And then looking at the effects that that has on a more fluent repertoire in the actual practice and games, right?
0: Yeah, on the game day performance that you practice it and then you see, does this work? And you put him in the game and with enough practice. Yeah, that is that is what's happened. That is what happened. So the overall effect of being good at something inspired the title for Carl Binder, which we mentioned him earlier, his 2003 article, Doesn't Everyone Need Fluency? rhetorical question and then he makes the case that fluency really it means being good at something and everyone is good at something and if they're going to improve and rise through the ranks in life and 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 get better at other things they can get even better at the thing that they're, they're already good at or they can get better at something else that um, that yeah everyone needs fluency and in his article he quotes a basketball coach um, named John Wooden who said quote skill as it pertains to basketball is the knowledge and the ability to Quickly and properly to execute the fundamentals. Being able to do them is not enough. They must be done quickly. And being able to do them quickly isn't enough either. They must be done quickly and precisely at the same time. You must learn to react properly, almost instinctively. End quote. Beautiful. Yeah, just a really great description of exactly what we're talking about here.
1: So Binder also argues here that fluency is true mastery, not accuracy alone, right? Accuracy plus speed.
0: Exactly. Another interesting element of fluency is that we tend to enjoy things that we're fluent at. So hundred percent. Yeah. Where I work, I work with a lot of students and it's very, very common that they'll hate something the first time they try it because they don't know how to do it. And once they've gotten practice at it and they start getting really good at it, then it's their favorite thing to do.
1: Yep. Very I, common. I experienced this in my life all the time.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll be like,
1: Someone will invite me to something and I'm like, Oh, I don't really think I want to do that. And it's like, Whoa, well, it's more that I'm just not good at it. And I should probably still go and explore it. Right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly. It. And even
1: dancing is a perfect one for me. Not <laughs> fluent. Do not enjoy it because of that deficiency in fluency.
0: I'll admit that the same is true for myself. <laughs> and the same is actually at my work. Like I used to, I Felt like I didn't know how to teach writing. And now that I do, it's my favorite thing to do. But when I was first learning how to teach writing skills, I didn't want to do it. So much so that if it came up, I would try and find a way out of it, you know, (laughs) to avoid it. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. But now it's my absolute favorite thing to do. and And I think it's really great. So that just, yeah, that's an outcome, another outcome of fluency. That's not one of the ones we mentioned on here, but we tend to see that when you get fluent performance, you tend to also have a preference for that activity. All right, so another interesting piece of this a lot of people often wonder is what neurology has to say about this and neuroscience, right? So one interesting thing is, all right, Ryan, what might you expect to see? I mean, just first thing that comes in your head, if you were looking at the brain of someone, like let's say with an fMRI or something, yeah. when the brain of someone who's really fluent, what would you expect to see going on there?
1: It's it's there's more neural connections, maybe, and there's more activity going on.
0: Yeah, it might look, you might expect that their brains are going crazy, really fast, all this stuff is happening, right? Yeah. But what was so interesting is that when neurologists have looked at the brains of people who are fluent, doing the thing that they're fluent at, their brain is actually doing much less than someone who's learning that skill. So That's like
1: the complete opposite. Right? Super interesting.
0: And so why is that? Well, it's because... It's much more efficient. The brain has gotten so efficient at doing this thing, it doesn't require very much energy. So, what happens is when you are practicing something to the point where it becomes a fluent skill, that means that part of that practice is building neural connections and then strengthening those connections with increased practice.
1: Doesn't so say it actually strengthens them. Yeah. Very interesting.
0: Exactly right. Until, just like with those 2002 Buccaneers and just like with John Wooden's basketball team, just like speaking a familiar language, it becomes something that is automatic. In a way, you could even say that your brain is wired to do it at that point because you've practiced. I know, right? It's
1: and, a pretty bold statement on this podcast.
0: <laughs> it is. It is. And and just you know, borrowing from the the neurology terms and how this is discussed and, and all of that, that that's what is seen is that the brain as you get more and more fluent at something, it actually requires less and less of that mental energy, that neural energy, whatever you want to call it, to actually execute it. Which means that you now have room to do other things, and you can expand on that skill. You can make it better, and that sort of thing.
1: I don't say. I love it.
0: It's great. All right. (laughs) And so we talked about things that are like, why do you need to be fluent at that? An example that I sort of mentioned was math. And although there is it's starting to be more well recognized that math fluency is important. This is a thing that is relatively recent in the research that we know, we've know. we known for a long time that reading fluency is important. That's been the primary measurement by which we determine that a student is reading appropriately or whether they need remediation or help. That's awesome. It's probably not going to change because it's such a sensitive and useful measure. Well, we're starting to find that math is about the same thing, that the faster that they can do math, the better they are being able to apply math and this is one that actually comes up a lot. That teachers are maybe not going to believe me, and I'm going to tell you because the research is there that it's true. They are better able to understand math if they're able to do it faster. They are better able to remember how to do math, and they're better able to apply it to new types of math. That they're gonna like all of those things are interrelated, and that's something that's starting to be shown more clearly in the in the uh, literature.
1: On that note, it's time for some take-home points. Abraham, what do you have?
0: All right. So first I want to point out is fluency is not something that you apply. You don't give someone fluency and then afterward you get a good performance. Yes. Fluency is good performance that has been arrived at through strategic repeated practice.
1: It does not necessarily always mean go fast. Right. right? It is uh, accuracy plus speed given that context. You're in. So just remember that brushing your teeth example.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And that there is fluency at the components. There's fluency at being able to do all of the steps along the way. Yes. you Because part of fluency is even if it's only doing it once, it's reacting immediately and without having to think about it. Right.
1: So it means understanding it so well that you don't have to spend time thinking about it or trying to figure it out or learning it from somebody else, copying somebody else. Right.
0: Exactly. And so just sort of a, another take home point this if you walk away from this episode, one thing to remember is that if you want to be good at something, then you can focus on becoming fluent at those tool skills or those component steps first and then work on being fluent on the overall skill if you can or if you aren't already.
1: So you can be fluent at reading. You can be fluent at following certain directions and all these sort of things can come together. Say if you're walking into a coffee shop, you might be fluent of like going in and finding coffee shops all the time, but the components can lead you to uh, combining those sort of things to experience the things you want to experience, right?
0: Right. Yeah. You don't necessarily. We're not going to teach someone to be fluent at order at ordering something from Starbucks, but if you, what you do need to be fluent at is being able to read the menu and be able to state your order in a clear way that it can be heard and understood and processed by the people on the other side of the counter. Those are all things that you are. That most people, not you, just you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah that that many people are fluent at and so if you had to burn calories over figuring out how to position your mouth just the right way and push air out of your lungs just the right way to form a sentence with all this conscious deliberate thought you're going to have a really hard time. Like you're almost non-communicative at that point. It's very difficult to communicate when it takes that much time and energy to think about something as simple as asking for what you need or what you want in that situation. So we work on that specifically. Get fast at those skills that are the things that you need to be able to do more complex things.
1: And on that, everyone could benefit from fluency. Yep. Right. Getting faster at something until you're fluent uh, means that you could be good at anything. So go out there, uh, use this. Think about how it can apply in your life. The cool thing is, is anything can fit this framework.
0: Yep, get good at something.
1: So, with all that power, be careful. Make sure you're <laughs> you're doing your. Uh, what's that? What's that saying? The, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's pretty great. I love it.
1: All right, and on that note, this
2: is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreoncom podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD WWD podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at NogDesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Bersier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.